Hello, this is Pastor Luke, and you are listening to the Living Hope Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. For more information about our church, please visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com. We're starting a new sermon series. We're going to be looking at 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And it is kind of interesting how a couple things kind of converged. One is that uh, in just trying to figure out, okay, like what should be the, the next books that we study? We try to kind of bounce back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament. I personally have just kind of had a growing curiosity about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And not really knowing why, but just, you know... No one ever preaches on, like, 2nd and 3rd John, you know? So it's like, well, we should do that. And uh, so just kind of a growing curiosity about 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But at the same time, you know, um, listening to, you know, this podcast from Elisa and how um, addressing some of, um, and we'll define this term in a bit, but kind of progressive Christianity, but then also being amazed at how 1st, 2nd, and John really speak to a lot of the stuff that Elisa is, was, was bringing up that is kind of currently under the banner of progressive Christianity and how the two kind of um, merged and really almost the apologetics that 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are going to provide for us um, as we continue to interact with other Christians and the world and, and what is the, the faith. And so it's been kind of fascinating on, on how this has come together. 1st, um, 2nd, 3rd John, three short letters Uh, It's believed that this is the same John that wrote the Gospel of John and the same John that wrote Revelation. Okay, so same guy. And um, 2nd and 3rd John are actually the two shortest letters in in the New Testament. I mean, they're just really, really quick. Um, But John was, I believe, facing a similar problem as what we're facing today in just that, especially in, in North America, a lot of people who would claim to be Christian or who would position themselves under the the banner or the word of Christian, but yet at the same time would deny a lot of kind of the core tenets of the Christian faith. And so what do we do when we have different people who are saying, I'm a Christian and I'm a Christian, but yet when you really look at it in the detail, really believing quite drastically uh, different different things. 1 John uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 19... They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So in 1 John, he's going to write a letter because there's been a group of Christians who were originally kind of part of the church, part of the group, um, and but they adopted some other views. They left. And so John is going to talk a lot about light, a lot about love, and a lot about truth as kind of a means of not just spotting false teachers, but even just how do we grow in our own personal spirituality. So that's 1 John. In 2 John, he's going to write to a local church, a local house church, and just give them a warning not to provide aid or support to these false teachers. And then in 3 John, he's going to write to an individual and encourage him to continue to, provi- to host and provide hospitality to the true um, Christian missionaries that, that are coming through. And so all of it's kind of connected, which is why we're going to go after um, all three at once. 
And just this idea, who are the true teachers, who are the false teachers, and then how do we recognize them? So let me, let me give you um, a phrase. Um, and one of, the, one of the words, and one of the dangers in kind of giving you a phrase or in giving you a word that we've pulled from culture is that oftentimes people will have different definitions of that word. So I'm going to give you a word, but then I'm going to give you just kind of my definition of that word to make sure that, that we're on the, the same page. And the word or the phrase um, is progressive Christianity. Now, here's the thing. In some ways, it's not so much about the word or the phrase progressive Christianity, but today, North America, our culture, our setting, there have been a group or, or a clustering of beliefs or ideas that are finding a home under the name or under the banner of progressive Christianity, and it is those beliefs that are problematic that I want to give you warning of. Now, if you go to India or Switzerland or Peru and you say the word progressive Christianity, they might have a completely different meaning, right? Like maybe for them it's like, we're progressive, we're now reading our Bibles on our iPhones, right? Like that may be all that they put to progressive, right? Or you go back 100 years or you fast forward 100 years, you might have different definitions. But just for us in our world today, it's really these ideas or these beliefs that are finding a home kind of under the umbrella or under the rooftop of progressive Christianity that I want to draw your your attention to. And again, my my thanks on Elisa because she did a lot of work on compiling the list and I was able to kind of build off that and it just saved me the problem of having to go to like 200 church websites to look all this up. Um, But I want to talk through kind of some of the ideas um, that currently find a, a home under this banner of progressive Christianity um, some of what they will deny and some of what, what they will affirm. And f- again, for each church or for each place, um, you know, this is not the fullness of the list or maybe it's only part of it. But simply to say, if I hear any of these things, this should set off a little bit of an alarm bell that I need to look into this a little bit more carefully and a little bit more detail. So I want to give you some of that, these ideas. I want to then just share uh, a very easy example that I found off another church website And then we're going to look real briefly at how 1 John is going to speak into all of these ideas. So currently, one of the big things that has kind of found a home under progressive Christianity, or that progressive Christians today would deny, is that they would deny the atonement. Atonement is kind of one of those Christianese words that really only gets used in in Christian circles. Um, But our understanding is that our sin separated us from God right? So atonement is then the the, the question or the topic of how do we then receive or experience reconciliation with God? Like, what needs to happen? What needs to be paid? What needs to be restored? Like, how do we restore that relationship? Big topic, lots of theories, smart people debate it all the time, you know, like we could spend a lot of time on that. Um, But a, a core piece, a cornerstone of atonement for us is this belief that our sin separated us from God, but our sin requires some kind of payment or kind of, yeah, I'll just stick with the word payment. Christ paid that debt when he died on the cross, and now salvation is free to anyone who accepts Jesus Christ, and Christ died died in our place. 
So currently, progressive Christianity would say that forgiveness of sins never required payment. That, that, that no payment was made. And, you know, that, that if God wanted to forgive, he can just forgive. Uh, no payment is necessary. And in fact, for God to require payment, and especially for God to require the death of his own son, I mean, God is nothing more than a cosmic child abuser. And so one of the, one of the first things that they will deny is the atonement, or what's sometimes called penal substitutionary atonement, because there's no way that God could be this cosmic child abuser. And so, therefore, your sin never acquired payment. So that's the first thing they would deny, or they may deny. Second big one that they would um, deny is biblical authority or biblical inspiration. And so for them, you know, the Bible is like this ancient journal thing, and, you know, you had good people back in the day who were doing the best with, with what they could, but it's not inspired, it's not inerrant, it's not authoritative. And actually, in fact, you and I, in sort of this enlightened place of, like, super wokenism or whatever, like, we're actually better positioned to understand and interpret the words of Jesus than, than they were. So, like, you know, kudos to a good effort, but it's not like, you know, they got maybe like a 7 out of 10 on, on what they, they wrote down. Um... Progressive Christianity would deny that we have a sin nature. So here's a big question. Are people born inherently good, or are they born inherently evil, right? Uh, Progressive Christianity would say that we're all born good, but it's just the environment around you that's bad, or or has has made you bad. And so you're going to hear a lot of talk on, well, you just need to get back to your true inner self, you, you know, you need to be you, you know, your truth to thine own self be true, because your heart is inherently good. Whereas we would say, nope, in heart, inherently evil, and that's why the world's a mess, right? Um, and, and, you know, even within that, progressive Christianity typically doesn't deny that sin exists. They would say sin does exist, but it tends to exist either in the other guy or it exists in government or systems and structures, and so those things need to be dealt with. But the individual heart is just fine. Don't worry about the individual heart. Uh, they would deny that sin separates us from God. Um, they would teach uh, that sin is not what separates us from God. It's our own self-imposed shame. And I have a fantastic example of this that I can't share from the pulpit. But if you ask me afterwards, I'll, I'll, I'll share it with you. Um, but they would say that our sin never really separated us from God in the first place. It's just our own shame. And so anything that you can do to avoid the shame or get rid of the shame, that's really what, what we're after. Uh, they may deny the deity of Christ uh, in either saying that Jesus was not God, or um, they may acknowledge that Jesus was God, but they just really downplay it a lot and really focus in on the humanity of Jesus. Um, in fact, some might go so far as to talk about cosmic Christ or Christ consciousness. Some might say that Jesus is actually just an example um, as someone who was christened as both human and divine later on. They may deny the physical resurrection of Jesus or, what, and this will come up in the example later on, um, it's not so much that the physical resurrection is important, but rather it's the meaning or the idea 
that we can draw from it that really provides us inspiration in how we live our lives. And the resurrection is not seen as something miraculously done by God, and it's not seen as something that is connected with our, our salvation and even our own um, uh, sort of resurrection. They may uh, deny the, the virgin birth or downplay other miracles, or it, you know, it's just seen as not important because if Jesus isn't of God, then the virgin birth isn't really that significant. Uh, they may deny uh, the Trinity, um, uh, or they may say that, you know, the universe is God, or God and the universe are interrelated, interdependent. Now you get into words like pantheism and panentheism and that kind of stuff. Um, and they may actually even go so far as to deny the sinlessness of Jesus. And again, not openly saying, well, Jesus was a sinner, but really emphasizing humanity. And so in stories like in Matthew 15, where there's kind of this interesting conversation, and Jesus says to this woman something about not giving bread to the dogs and whatnot, well, you know, Jesus just had a racial bias that, that he needed to correct. Okay. Those are some of the things that, that they may deny. Some of the things that they will affirm. One of the first things that they will affirm um, is LGBTQ relationships and marriage. Now, I'm going to give you terms, but I'm not going to define those terms, because parents, that's on you in your timing, okay? So if you need to write these down and Google them yourself later on, that's fine, but I'll just give you a couple terms. Um, so almost universal acceptance of LGBTQ relationships, of Lydia, of uh, transgenderism, and also a, you might want to write this one down, rejection of cisgender norms. We can talk about that later. On a side note, the, the, the LGBTQ thing, that's going to be, you know, just kind of an ongoing uh, discussion, really, within Christian faith. Um, I would simply encourage you to say that in that conversation, it is helpful to separate, I experience attraction from I engage in a relationship. Because there is a difference from I experience a temptation or a desire to I engage in the conduct. Those are two separate conversations, and you want to handle those separately. Um, and again, I would just, just kind of trying to keep this simple, just as, you know, as evangelical Mennonite brethren, we would say that God's original plan, God's kind of original intention that, that remains relevant today, is, you know, one man, one woman, covenant relationship for life, and that when we go outside that, we're really going outside what, what God wanted to see happen. We recognize that Scripture gives a couple situations where sin creates an opening for divorce. Um, but again, for the sake of time, not going to unpack all of that today. Other than just say that is, that is part of the conversation. Um, there would also be an affirmation in universalism or universal reconciliation. So, you know, this view says that, you know, God is never actually going to send anyone to hell. Um, he's going to save everyone. He's going to restore everyone. And so that's not, not really a thing. Um, the other uh, thing would, a strong affirmation of today what is called um, critical theory um, or, or like the social justice gospel. So the gospel is not perceived as this good news that Jesus saved you from your sins and you can have restored, you know, relationship with, with God. But rather, the gospel is 
um, kind of whatever social justice issue that you're passionate about. Uh, racial tensions, uh, environment, poverty, uh, wealth distribution, you know, even crush the patriarchy or whatever, you know, like that kind of thing, right? So they would say that the heart of Jesus, what he was really trying to do is, and then insert this, this social justice issue. And, I mean, a lot of those are important, and a lot of those need to be dealt with, but, we, but we're talking about what's the core of, you know, why Jesus came and, and what Jesus accomplished on the cross. Um, and you also just may hear that the death of Jesus did not pay our sin debt. Rather, the death of Jesus on the cross was an example of what it looks like when love conquers the government. When love conquers, you know, evil, religious, power-hungry people. It's an example of, of all of that. And then lastly, uh, it may affirm pluralism, which is just this idea that all roads lead to God. So, kind of as an example, I did a quick Google search. Uh, I actually searched uh, progressive Christian pastors, right? Just to see what would come up. Um, and uh, on the very first page, there was this church. And the church self-identified as a, as a progressive Christian church. And, you know, and so you can go to the beliefs. And it was interesting. And I, I pulled out excerpts. You know, there are some phrases where I'm like, yeah, that's fantastic. And then there are other phrases where I'm like, uh, you know, and, and, and kind of the warning bell kind of starts to, to go off. And so just kind of a real-world example of some of what we've, what we've talked about. So for this church, uh, they write, In keeping with our reformed and reforming identity, we have embraced a movement that began in 2006 called Progressive Christianity. Okay, all right. The Bible is read at every one of our progressive Christian worship services and is the foundation of our belief, faiths, and values. I like that. That works for me. That makes me happy. We believe in the Trinity, God the Creator, Jesus the Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Yep, I like that. Uh, we believe that Jesus' commandment to love one another as I have loved you is foundational. Okay, now that right there should be your first trigger. The greatest commandment in Scripture is love God. The second greatest commandment in Scripture is to love others. What you will often see is the two are inverted, where the greatest commandment is love others, and the commandment to love God is either relegated to a lower status or it's simply ignored altogether. So whenever love people trumps love God, that should just kind of put your up antennas to be like, I need to to now read this a little bit more carefully, like, what do we, what do we mean by this? Um, we believe that God's will and way were revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah, it's good. We believe the historical Jesus, the Jewish rabbi carpenter who lived in ancient Palestine, yep, became the Christ. Wait, what? Became the Christ? Became the Christ as his followers encountered him in their midst after his earthly death. Wait, what? Uh, the Holy Spirit awakened them to the power of Jesus' presence in their midst. Jesus came alive when they trusted that his love, guidance, support, comfort, and challenge remained with them, even though his physical body did not. So Jesus' resurrection was based on their belief in him, not on God's power. Um, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection provide... Now, we would say his life, death, resurrection provides salvation, restoration with God, that kind of thing. 
his, his life, death, resurrection provide inspiration and challenge. Nothing about new life. Inspiration and challenge for us to live as followers of Jesus. Okay? The Christian faith is founded on three primary calls we see through Jesus. To love God. That works for me. I like that. Uh, to love our neighbor. That works for me. I like that. To love ourselves. Wait, where did that come from? The Christian faith, listen for it, the Christian faith is our way of being faithful to God, but it is not the only way. And probably at this point you should just turn and run, but I'm going to keep reading. Christian faith is true for us, but it is not the only truth. This principle stems from the reality of the 21st century. Uh, we share our lives with people who are Muslim and Jewish and Hindu and, and Buddhist. Um, to deny the, uh, okay, um, uh, we experience them. To deny that is to deny that God can only draw people one way. That is not born out of our experience. The power of the Christian faith to transform lives does not require it to be exclusively true. We would say it does. Uh, exclusivity is born out of fear, the fear that there is one train to God, and if you aren't on the train, you'll go to hell. It's a bit crass, but yes. Uh, we believe that there are many trains, and God welcomes them all. Um, care of the earth, so then there, there's talk about climate uh, change, embracing that. Um, love of neighbor means extending kindness and care. Uh, love of neighbor includes affirmation of LGBTQ community immigrants, people of other faith traditions, and even those who are enemies. Love of self means engaging in spiritual disciplines. So spiritual disciplines are not a way for us to grow closer to God. Rather, um, spiritual disciplines are just good self-care. Uh, worship, prayer, music, study the Bible, other literature feeds the mind and the heart. Um, and then, then they go on that. So that was kind of an easy one. I mean, they, they, they self-identified as progressive Christian, and so it was easy to, to kind of pull that out. On my shelf, I've got a little book called um, Know the Heretics. Uh, and in the book, the author will name, like, a person or a group from, like, 1st second, first century, 2nd century, 3rd century, whatnot, and then I'll talk about what they believe and how it deviated from the Christian faith and their, their heresy, which sounds like a strong word, and I mean, it is, but, you know, how they, how they pulled away from the, the Christian faith. What's fascinating is if you read through it, it's the same stuff. Like, <laughs> there are no new heresies. Like, there's no new false teaching. The world just kind of recycles them, right? Kind of like whatever, fashion. You know, bell bottoms and braided belts and whatnot. Like, you wait long enough, it's going to come back, you know? Same thing with heresies, same thing with false teachings. You just wait long enough, and that thing's just going to cycle back. That doesn't mean it's not dangerous. It is dangerous. And a lot of people are, are going to be led astray by, by some of these teachings. But at the same time... The church has been dealing with this for like 2,000 years. And if you're willing to actually go back, you know, through some of the old literature, there's a lot of stuff that people have written in the past, you know, um, addressing this. And so we have our, our current authors and our, our current apologists, and they're using new um, forms of media and engagement like podcasts and YouTube and that kind of thing. And then you have the old guys who spoke in like Old English and wrote it in Latin and whatever else, right? So it's just kind of the same stuff recycled. The Apostle John is already dealing with this stuff when he's still alive. And so he has to write three additional letters 
to deal with it. First John, he, he's going to give a warning about this group of people who are part of the church, but then they adopted these other beliefs and they left the church, and they're now trying to get people to gather around them. And th- so throughout that first letter, he's going to keep referencing light and darkness, truth and error, love and hatred, you know, putting definitions to each so that the early church could recognize these false teachers from true teachers and, and false teaching from true teaching. Uh, progressive Christianity or even the world, they're going to tell you that all the religions are the same and that all religions lead to God. But in 1 John 4.1, John is going to write, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. The, the world is going to say, well, there's no original sin, it's only your shame that separates you from God. And yet John is going to write in chapter 1, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The world is going to say, you know, it's going to deny the atonement, that Jesus had to die in our place. And yet John is going to write in chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The world is going to deny the the sinlessness of Jesus. And John is going to write in chapter 1, verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. As much as 1 John is going to help us understand uh, true Christianity, it's also going to help us grow in our own relationship uh, with Jesus and how to grow on that. Um, As I've said, 1 John... it, it can be a little bit confusing because these themes of, of light and truth and love are, are kind of inger, intermingled all throughout. But you do see that in the first two chapters, there appears to be this emphasis on fellowship. Fellowship with God. Fellowship with others. Um, and, 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 you know, using light, love, and truth to understand fellowship. Chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him... While we walk in darkness, we lie, we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Then in chapters 3 through 5, you're going to see John talking a lot about sonship, uh, or being a child of God, uh, or or being born of him. So, like in chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. Chapter 4, verse 7, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so these are the the tests for others, for us, for ourselves, and others. John lived in an environment very much like ours. Very much like ours. uh, Where people claim to follow Christ, but they're actually adopting beliefs outside the teaching of Christ. And so he writes these three letters to deal with the, the situation. And so God, John is going to give us some great truth that, that contradicts some of, of those falsehoods that are in our world today and that existed in his world as well too. But at the same time, within that, he's going to challenge us to continue to press in, grow in our relationship with Christ. There's, there's strong stuff on just personal spirituality and continuing to grow and mature as, as a Christian. And so as much as this will equip the mind 
to understand and know what to look for, it's also going to challenge and enlarge the heart to say, how do I grow in love and truth and light, not only for my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but also for my fellow Christians and, my, and the believers around me. So, it should be a great journey, and I'm excited to do it with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the continued relevance of Scripture. And Lord, we acknowledge that, that John and so many of these writers lived in a world that mirrored ours in, in many ways. And it just continues to prove the timelessness of your word, because your word is your truth, Lord, and we are so thankful for that. And above all, Lord, we thank you for restored relationship that is available to us through salvation through Jesus Christ. God, we thank you that 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 that, that can happen and that we can be cleansed of our sins and that we can know you as our Lord and our Savior and even as our friend. Lord, I pray that as we go through this next sermon series that you would equip our minds for understanding and understanding the times and being able to see that around us just with clarity but at the same time that you would enlarge our hearts for you and enlarge our hearts for one another and grow us into closer fellowship with you and into closer understanding of what we have in sonship or or as in being a child of god pray for this church that you watch over them that you protect them this week and the next you guard their hearts and their minds and that in all things you draw them closer to you. We love you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you were enriched and encouraged. If you have any questions about Christ or church or would like more information, visit our website at livinghopehenderson.com or email me directly at luke at livinghopehenderson.com. We hope you have a fantastic week. Take care and God bless.